Hello as always to everyone listening. This is your host, Ryan Willoughby. Today on A Hand Up, we have none other than Mrs. Barbara Beck, the Executive Director of Habitat for Humanity Florida. Barbara is a veteran of the Habitat Ministry who has helped propel the growth and expansion of our mission in the state of Florida to substantial stratospheric levels. During this Zoom interview with Barbara, she delivers some sound insight into what has made our mission so preeminent in the state of Florida and shares with us some of her wisdom and experience as a leader. Well, good morning, Barbara. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on the Hand Up podcast. Hey, good morning, Ryan. Really nice to talk to you. Well, Barbara, I, you know, I think I've made this clear to you before, but I, I look up to you quite a bit. Uh, when I came into this role seven years ago, you were one of the first people that I actually sat down and met with. You were definitely the first ASO that I sat down and talked with. And, um, you know, so I, I know you fairly well. I've had a chance to to see the things that you've you've done and accomplished, but I would love it if you would just introduce yourself to our listeners so we can know who is Barbara Beck, what is Habitat Florida, and, and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay, uh, so I, I was uh, born in Chicago and I uh, studied business at Roosevelt University. And like many people that are in the nonprofit field, I had a previous uh, profession. I sold computers for 14 years for a major manufacturing, which is a ma- manufacturer, which is the long gone digital equipment corporation. Uh, they were bought by Compact Computer and eventually by Hewlett-Packard, and in fact, I just started receiving my HP pension this year, which feels very weird. Um, I started volunteering for Habitat for Humanity because I had been rehabbing houses in Newport Beach, California with my then husband. We had no idea what we were doing, I can assure you, Ryan, Uh, but we made money. (laughs) It's kind of hard not to make money there at least you know you know taking a bad house and making it better and I loved that I loved taking a house that uh was an eyesore on a street you know there's believe it or not there's plenty of them in Newport Beach and um making something nice out of it and the neighbors love you you know and uh and and you can make money at it so it was great so I thought oh, uh, I admire this Habitat for Humanity organization. And Jimmy Carter actually was the first president I voted for um, when I was old enough to vote. And I thought, uh, well, I could not only contribute something, you know, with my background in sales and public speaking, uh, but I could also learn a bunch. And uh, after uh, I got laid off from my computer job, you know, all these uh, problems were happening there, which is eventually, like I say, why they were bought. Um, I uh, was asked to come and run the office in Orange County, California in um, 1993. And I almost didn't take the job because when I sold computers, one of my customers was local government, Orange County government. And I sort of equated nonprofit work with local government you know, wheels moving slow, (laughs) terrible bureaucracy. Uh, And I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm just going to go back to school. (laughs) But um, funny, funny, funnily enough, uh, I, 
because I was in sales, um, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to ask who's my competition for this job because I was interv- I was basically interviewing to run their office, and uh, uh, I said, well, who else is you know what's my competition for this position? You know, I was just kind of treating it seriously because I haven't inter- hadn't interviewed for a job in a really long time, and I thought, well, I need the practice. So I said, who's my competition? They said, oh, you don't have any competition. We really want you. And uh, being a person of faith, I just said, well, I guess I'm going to go do this job then. (laughs) So I took the job and, um, you know, talk about, you know, you know, when I said earlier that I, my ex-husband and I had no idea what we were doing. I had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely none. I said, I'm going to run it like a business, face it, fine with us. That's what we want. And here I am running a nonprofit serving a GSA of 3 million people. <laughs> and I was like, man, oh man, this is crazy. You know, but I, I loved it. Uh, some people said, you know, well, you took to this like a duck to water. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, remember I was run, I was just being like the office manager. They didn't even have an executive director. Oh, really? And, so- Okay, so right. you were the office manager, not not even the executive director. Right. Oh, wow. So they just said, we want somebody to run the office. And I'm like, okay. So it turns out that's what I was applying for was the office. It was called the office manager. Great big pay cut, too, by the way, which, but I had gotten a big payout when I got laid off. So uh, I was willing to do that. Um, anyway, so uh, when I, I started doing that job. Um, I applied for a Disney grant. You know, it was Orange County's the you know Anaheim is in there and Disneyland, the original Disneyland there, and they were big you know big player there in Orange County, California, and um, and in LA County too. And they would have a they would have awards every year, and you know the previous employees and volunteers would you know fill out the application every year and I never got any money from Disney and so having uh, a background in sales and writing proposals and I just looked at their former applications and I said oh I see why they haven't won anything because they'd never answer the question (laughs) so I filled out the application yeah so I filled out the application you know I'm the office manager I fill out the application and I go to the award ceremony and I get the big award, not just one of the little ones. I get the big award. So, uh, so uh, a few months later, they decided they needed to hire an executive director, and they ended up hiring me. So, um, so that was my first Habitat job, and I I stayed there for five years, uh, and I moved to Florida and worked for Habitat Lee County for five years. And uh, then I moved to Habitat Pinellas, which is St. Pete in Clearwater. And I did that job for 10 years. And in 2013, I took this job, which is the one I'll retire from in January. It's just president and CEO for Habitat for Humanity of Florida. So I'm your counterpart in Florida. And, uh, and ironically, just like my first Habitat job, I didn't really want this job. <laughs> I was the I was the uh, board chair. I was involved with you know organizing Habitat Florida, getting it off the ground, 
And um, I could see that it was a job with lots of responsibility and no authority, which we'll talk about more, I'm sure, in this interview. Uh, and, but uh, I went uh, as a, we didn't have an executive director. Uh, when I was president, we had hired somebody. We also fired that person. And um, so I just was volunteering to, we were just like, well, we need a break from having a staff person. Let's just regroup and we'll hire somebody later. Well, in the meantime, this big opportunity came up and I went to the Florida legislature and I um, testified and wrote proposals to get some of the uh, federal mortgage settlement funds that came about after the mortgage crisis of 2008. And I ended up getting um, $20 million for Habitat affiliates in Florida. And I was still running Habitat Pinellas and kind of doing a du dual job running Habitat Florida. And uh, I had to make a decision. You know, I really didn't want to keep doing that. And, uh, you know, I hear I got, I was the one who got this money. And um, was I going to hire somebody to hand it out? And I was kind of like, I was torn. <laughs> and because uh, I loved Habitat affiliate work. I loved running an affiliate, but I absolutely loved it. Um, but I could just kind of see the handwriting on the wall. Maybe we'd hire someone. I'd been living with this idea of this money and what we would do with it. And we only had 18 months to spend it. And I thought, what's going to happen? You hire somebody, that person's going to struggle. They're going to say, Barbara, help this person. And I'm going to end up doing two jobs again for however, God knows how long. So I just said, all right, I guess, all right, God, I guess you have a sense of humor and <laughs> want me to take this job now. So, uh, so I applied and got this position. And so again, that was 2013. So I've been doing that um, now for you know more than eight years and uh, I'll retire in January. So five months and uh, something like 10 days from now, I'm gonna be retiring and uh, I'm very excited. Fantastic. What do you plan to do in your retirement, Barbara? I had never actually asked you that. What, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I'm quitting Habitat Cold Turkey. Okay. I've had some people say, oh, you can travel around the country and help <laughs> struggling Habitat affiliates. And I say to myself, oh, why don't you just stick toothpicks in my eyes? <laughs> um, so uh, uh, I, I just really, I, Habitat work is very stressful. This job has been very stressful. I've had a pretty stressful personal life. I've had a lot of health challenges, had cancer, some surgeries. And I'm just going to um, be as active as I can. I love to ride bikes, uh, hike, uh, swim, play in the snow, uh, you know, whatever that looks like. Is there a lot you know, of that in Florida? You get a lot of opportunities to go play in the snow down there? Yeah, I'm going to probably <laughs> move to oh, oh, that's a mountains. Oh, yeah. you are? Okay, so you're not going to stay on the beach? Nope. Not okay. going to stay on the beach. It's a little hot here, and uh, it's not going to get any cooler, and um, we're not going to have fewer hurricanes, probably more, and I don't see any mountains springing up here anytime soon. So, <laughs> so I'm probably going to move, but um, 
uh, I, I just um, visit friends, family. I feel like I've done a lot with my life and I'm not at all going to feel bad. I'll probably find some, you know, cause that I want to be involved with. But the reality is like, even if I did board service for a Habitat affiliate, I just, I know too much. <laughs> it's not going to be too stressful for me to do, even do that. I want to do, I just want to have a nice stress-free rest of my life as much as I possibly can. So. Well, I, I don't know if you've looked at uh, any particular locations, but you know, we've got some beautiful mountainous areas here in Georgia. You're more than welcome to come up here. And, and I promise I won't tell any nearby affiliates that you've moved there and to reach out. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're, you're more than welcome to join us. I'm thinking uh, about changing my name again. So I'm going to make That's a, uh, wow. That's pretty serious. Called Turkey there, Barbara. If you get to outright change your name, change your cell phone number, all that stuff. And um, they'll go in the, Habitat Witness Protection Program. <laughs> well, I don't think you'd be in that program by yourself. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, so, you know, as we close there, you were kind of talking about some of your life experiences. I'd really love to unpack that a little bit further because, you know, as you're looking at, um, you know, 20 plus years, almost 30 years of leadership in, in Habitat in some regard, I'd be really interested to know, I mean, you've gone through a lot, how have those life experiences really prepared you for your current role or maybe changed your perspective on things as time have gone on? Uh, well, uh, one of the things I used to do, well, I, I still do to some degree, but I'm so busy with habitat work, I don't do it as much. But before I started uh, even volunteering for Habitat for Humanity, I was always the one who was tapped for you know, I'm running, I'm at the women's club and they're like, oh, you should, you know, be our president. You should, you know, organize our events. You should do, you know, I always, uh, I had good administrative skills. I was pretty good public speaker. And so um, people would tap me for stuff like that. Um, and, and really one of the motivations for me and um, volunteering for Habitat for Humanity is I felt, you know, like, Everything else that I'd done up to that point had been, there'd been some element of it, some element of it in it for me, meaning I'm helping to run my women's club I'm help, that I belong to. I'm helping to run my church. I'm going to help run Habitat for Humanity, but I'm not getting the house. <laughs> you know? So I wanted something completely altruistic that had nothing, had zero to do with me. And um, so that's really why I ended up at Habitat for Humanity and started putting my skills to use. Um, but I want to I, I want to say one of the I've been described as a woman of action, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, I, I, or uh, like someone who's like a dog with a sock, <laughs> you know, never giving up. So lots of persistence. Yeah, don't tell people I, you know, people describe me as a dog. But um, you know, I've just very persistent about things that I think should happen and aren't happening or um, are wrong and need to be put right, you know, so, uh, so I'm very persistent. I think that's, that's what drives me is for excellence is to say, this is not going well, how can I fix it? Mm, I like that a lot. That's a great attitude to have. So tell me a little bit more 
as we kind of unpack this, you talked a little bit about the, the different responsibilities you've had, but in the habitat realm, what has really been the most rewarding thing for you? You mentioned, I'm going to help habitat, but I'm not getting a house. Is it that benefit to you, the altruistic side of it that, that, that makes you feel good and you know that you're giving back? What, what exactly has been the most rewarding thing for you? Yeah, I, I, I do have to say that um, the primary thing that I focus on is how many families I've housed. And I actually used to keep count you know, like how many houses were built uh, under my leadership in one way or another, or, and how many have been built with tithe money that I've sent to Habitat International. And I, I, but I've lost track now. And it's really hard in our current role, you know, running the state organization to know exactly how many houses you're responsible for. So I just know that it's thousands of families. And uh, now, because in the time that I've been as Habitat Florida, I've raised an extra. I mean, the Habitat affiliates get a certain amount of money every, you know, every year, uh, various ways. Um, but I've raised an extra $52 million. That's a lot of houses and families. And, um, and I'm, happy with, I'm happy about that. Uh, uh, that's what I'm going to remember. That's why I'm not going to feel bad that I'm sitting on my butt watching a fantastic documentary or reading a great book or gardening instead of building a house because I've built a lot already. And I'm not going to, I'm going to feel good about that and not feel bad about what I'm maybe I'm not doing. Uh, that's a great attitude to have. You've definitely made your mark, Barbara. You're, you're leaving behind a powerful legacy there. Um, I love that you just said you eventually just lost count and that that's awesome. So I, I, I want to kind of switch the gears a little bit. If that's the most rewarding thing, um, what's been the most disappointing kind of experience for you being a part of Habitat and being in a leadership role there? Well, I want to be a little bit careful how I say this, but, uh, but, you know, I have real concerns about the Habitat network. Um, so, because the organization grew up without any thought to strategy, um, Millard Fuller was very keen to have as many affiliates as possible. And uh, hey, that's great, you know, all those years ago when you're trying to build momentum. Uh, but now we have 53 affiliates in Florida, for example, and it's inefficient uh, and, and uh, a good. Uh, illustration of that is that there are three Habitat affiliates in Monroe County, which is a population of 70,000 people and covers the Florida Keys. So that means a lot of duplication of effort, uh, difficulty in differentiating themselves, you know, confusion with the people there, which, which one serves them. <laughs> They're all in the same county, you know. Uh, difficulty finding leadership and staff you know, they're, they're all trying, they're all stepping over each other. Um, actually had one of them call me and ask me if I knew of an affiliate that was willing to share their fundraising person with them. I'm like, no, you just need to merge with, the, with the other affiliates on your, in your county, you know, and they don't want to hear that, but that's really what needs to happen. Um, so the second problem, and again, I, I think it's an outgrowth of the 
way that Habitat for Humanity um, grew over the years and has sort of outpaced its ability to govern itself. And, and what my position suffers from, and yours too, all of, all of the state leader jobs, is that it's a position with lots of responsibility and zero authority. And it's counterproductive and uh, it's going to only get worse as affiliates get bigger and uh, more powerful. And it, it needs to be fixed and it doesn't appear that that's going to happen anytime soon. So I wanna follow up on this example that you just gave of Monroe County. Now, we don't we don't have a similar example here in Georgia necessarily, but there have been times where I've reached out to affiliates where merging was the logical choice. It just made sense for them at that point in time. And I've seen that there's been some affiliates that are very open to that and like the idea a lot, and they really go through with it, and they've been very successful with that. And then I've seen affiliates who just take this hard no stand of corner you know this is my hill and I'm going to die on it kind of thing and mm. I, I hate to say it but I, I can't think of one single time where that's worked out to be successful within a few years that affiliate is shutting down what do you think from a leader to me it seems like a leadership issue a sort of short-sightedness and you know maybe a little bit of ego there what do you see that kind of contributes to that to that willingness or rather unwillingness of leaders to not give up some ground not give up their territory what do, what are your yeah thoughts i on? think I, I uh you said a little bit of ego i think it is a large percentage overwhelming percentage of the contributing factor is ego and it's um it's more i'm finding it's more on the part of the board than it is on mm -hmm. staff which, uh, you know, on the surface of it, you might think that it would be the opposite, but um, I, I, I'm just going to say that uh, I'm, I have an initiative in Florida that I'm leaving behind, which is called Vision 2030. And it is to encourage affiliates to collaborate and um, to consider uh, sharing services together and maybe moving on to some type of merger. And there's several different types of mergers that can be made. I've been encouraged Habitat for Humanity International to institutionalize the different types of mergers, which they have not done yet, uh, because it gives some legitimacy. I can talk about them, but uh, it, you know they're not like you're not going to find them in a Habitat handbook anywhere. But um, an example would be uh, what N Nashville Habitat has done, which they've absorbed um, five counties now. And the affiliates that used to be there still have a small board and some staff, and maybe they're restored depending on you know, how well each restore is doing. And a lot of the you know, big functions are, are done at Nashville Central, if you will. And um, you know they do all the mortgages and the servicing and the major fundraising and the organizing the major events and the local affiliate. They only really do three things: they um, raise some local money, 
they uh, manage the job site, um, you know, volunteers and uh, make sure everything is going well there. They don't even order the materials. Uh, and the, uh, the last thing that they do is, um, let's see, so it's a job site and uh, selecting the families, uh, managing the job site, raising some local money. Those three things are mainly what they do. And they have a small board at each place and each small board has a representative on the Nashville board. So that's, uh, they call that a division model. Uh, I don't know what it'll end up getting called, you know, uh, officially, but that's, and, and a lot of our affiliates like that model. You know, they can see that that would serve them well and get a, do away with some of the ego issues that, that you and I've talked about. So um, I do have one, I have uh, two, excuse me, two affiliates that uh, where the leaders are retiring, they're next to each other. And they, based on the ideas and vision 2030, they've gotten together, they've hired somebody that's like their COO and they're grooming him to take over a mer ultimately merged affiliate when the two those two leaders retire. And that's the beauty of having a vision like that, a plan like that is affiliates can say, hey, you know, we think that's a good idea. Let's, let's plan for it. Let's not just totally disrupt our organization today, but let's plan for it. And um, so I'm going to be really excited to give an update at my conference coming up in September about that initiative and about that, um, those two affiliates, they're going to make a presentation at that conference. I love that, Barbara. And I particularly want to focus on this matter of vision that you just said there, because that's a word that I've been thinking quite a bit about and the necessity of that, particularly for, for what we do, because it sounds like those two affiliates, as you see, they see the bigger vision of what Habitat is supposed to be doing. And I, I'll give you an example of one of the obstacles I've run into where this lack of vision was particularly noticeable is where we would have adjoining affiliates or excuse me, adjacent affiliates. And one of them was smaller, wasn't functioning, hadn't been serving families for a number of years. And we would encourage them to look at merging in or consolidating with a neighbor. And even though they were adjacent affiliates, they each acted as if they lived in, well, they didn't each act this way, but one of the affiliates typically at least would act as if they lived in a totally different country, not a different county, that they weren't 10 miles away, that most of their folks didn't actually work in the other county. And there would be this real hesitancy to merge with their neighbor this they would see it as almost i don't know what's the best word but almost blasphemous you know they would say well we need to have a habitat affiliate in this county and you know you'd say to them okay well when was the last time you guys even served a family well it was seven years ago well okay well, if you have that sort of urgency to help people why don't you try to find the best way to do it because clearly what you're doing is not working have you seen that kind of thing as well how have you yeah, for sure. And see, I see this is where Habitat International needs to be serious about taking a leadership position and streamlining the organization. And if they don't do it, uh, it it's going to be so much harder to pull off. So here, 
you know, so again, you know, if you go back to the beginning or earlier in our conversation, I talk about how, you know, the state leaders, we have a less responsibility and no authority, you know, that they're, we're, and yet we're trying to drive this, you know, please merge kind of mentality when it makes sense. And uh, without the the teeth or whatever that Habitat International or the, um, the impetus that they could be providing, um, we're, we're stuck with, you know, it's kind of like, who is that, Sisyphus that's pushing the rock uphill? You know, I'm getting tired of pushing the rock uphill. You know, I could just tell you that. So, um, so it is really frustrating. And uh, I had for years when I ran Habitat Pinellas, uh, I had an adjoining affiliate that there were some years they didn't build any houses and they were the second largest GSA in our whole state. And I kept after Habitat and, and they kept, had a revolving door for their executive director. They obviously had serious board issues and I was after Habitat International to get them to force them to merge with me and they never did it. Now, eventually that affiliate hired a good leader, um, board is better and they're now producing, you know, better than they were, but it's still not what it could have been if they built up that momentum so many years ago. And it was almost criminal that you, they built no houses uh, in that GSA in any year, you know, so uh, let alone, you know, there were maybe five years that I was, of the 10 years that I was running Habitat Pinellas that they didn't build any houses. So anyway, just, just it, it all comes back to, to me, to international not taking charge. Uh, and they, they need to do that. Wow. You, you know, that's, that's powerful. I mean, that's a really powerful example because it shows me, you know, Barbara, with what we do in the nonprofit world, we're, of course, supposed to be mission-centric, right? And, you know, what you hear said a lot of times is eventually we want to put ourselves out of business, not due, of course, to mismanagement by any means, but by virtue of the fact that we've solved a particular problem, in our case, poverty housing. And it's at the end of the day, this thing is not about how many affiliates can we have or having our own affiliate or, you know, making our individual mark here, but, you know, really getting people into houses. So when you hear about an affiliate there who for that long of a period of time is not serving families, you really, at least to me, I do have to ask, you know, how focused are you really on the mission? You know what I mean? I mean, how, how serious are you taking this? Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that was... Yeah, that was a frustrating situation. And um, anyway, um, I'm just glad they're they're finally that ship is finally righted and they're you know doing very well now. So, uh, and in fact, <laughs> funny they hired a whole bunch of people that used to work for me at Habitat Pinellas. <laughs> so it almost looks like a Habitat Pinellas shop over there. So, um, so I did want to talk. I did want to tell a story, Brian. Uh, okay, so um, one of the things that I felt I learned as a leader uh, is that you, you, it's easy to have ego and say, oh, I'm doing everything right, you know, uh, and I don't know where I read this, um, but I know I, I didn't make it up on my own, but I, 
I said, uh, you know, you always have to be looking for what's the weakest link so that you can fix it. So, you, you know, you're right, really this, you know, con continuous improvement cycle. And um, so, uh, so I, I would do that. And, um, and I go back to even when I started working for Habitat Pinellas, um, they built two, two houses the years, the year that I came. And uh, they had, I don't know, $100,000 in the bank. It was not a good situation. And so I said, well, I have to find out what's not working and fix it. And so one of the things that I think is a real key to Habitat for Humanity's success, in the, especially in the United States, I'm sure it's true in other countries, but they have other issues. Sometimes corruption and stuff can be a big issue in other uh, countries, but um, you really need the support of local government. So, you know, one of the things I set out to do is to talk to every city. I, I, I can't remember now how many cities are in Pinellas County, but it was something like 25 or something like that. And so I went to every city and, you know, introduced myself and, and uh, if they didn't know me already and uh, talked to them about what Habitat for Humanity and almost everyone said we don't like your houses we're not we're not that excited about having you in our city and and I had one city I mean we had had some success in a couple of cities and the city of St. Petersburg they would say we are not crazy about your houses but we like what you're doing and they were very supportive and so I I uh I went to all these cities. And so I tell you, I had a pastor once say during his sermon, he said, uh, if someone tells you you're a horse, you shouldn't believe them. If two people tell you you're a horse, you might want to look in the mirror. And if three people tell you you're a horse, just go strap on a feed bag because you're a horse. And so I went to all these cities and they're all telling me, we hate your houses. You're not serious about affordable housing, blah, blah. So I went back to the board and I said to them, we're a horse. <laughs> we need to change. So um, it took a while to convince them of that. And because there can be a lot of, you, know, you talk about ego, there can be a lot of habitat ego. In other words, you know, we have a big name, we're Habitat and you're not. And I don't find, you know, in all my years of experience, and when I retire next year, it'll be 30 years of experience. I don't find that serves us well at all. And um, so ultimately what I did was once I've convinced the board that we need to build a better house, um, as a much longer story, but uh, I uh, invited every city to a, new house that we built that was a better house than what anything we'd ever built and i called it we're not your daddy's habitat as you may remember that old we're not your father's oldmobile or something like that uh slogan and invited everybody and i convinced one of the county commissioners to um be the inviter so they were ostensibly being invited by you know county commissioner uh, to this event, we're not your daddy's habitat. And after that, things really took off. I and mean, we had to, we had to walk the talk. You know, we had to prove it that we were willing 
to change and be uh, make not just a dent, but a you know real uh, mark on affordable housing in the area, and um, and be a player. You know, participate in planning and visioning for the county and the cities. Um, but once we did that, we got we started getting so many. Uh, opportunities for land, for money, you know, we would be the go-to agency for, you know, hey, we've got this money we need to spend by October. Can you, do you have something? Can you do it? And we, we took advantage, every advantage of those opportunities as we could. So, um, so I, I, I think the bottom line is that you have to look at what's broken and and fix them, fix those things. And it, you have to be willing to do, like, I think, uh, I don't know if we said this earlier, but uh, you have, you may not be making a popular decision about something, but if it's got, if it's broken, it's got to be fixed. You know, it's kind of like you have a bad employee and you're like mm, sort of letting that person slide. Well, it, that's demotivating to the rest of your employees. So, you know, you, it's the same thing with just an organization, organizational aspect. You know, if it's not going well and you're not doing anything about it, it's demotivating. Yeah. And, you know, Barbara, what you were saying there, by the way, I absolutely love that horse story. Um, I'm, I'm totally going to steal that. Um, you know, the, I was listening to the John Maxwell podcast the other day, actually, and they were talking about this. And I feel like what you said really um it, it just is in perfect alignment with what they were saying is the importance from any successful leader if you look at them um, the importance of introspection of you know self-examination the willingness to look at oneself and say perhaps using your terminology am i the weakest link is there something that i'm either doing wrong or maybe is there something that i can do better um do you do that sort of thing in, in your, your leadership roles? Do you have a time where you sit down and say, okay, Barbara, what, what's going on here? Well, I have done that. Um, I, 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 let me just say, let me answer it this way. I read a lot. Um, I'm open to professional development. I've done, attended many of those in the past had times when I've had a coach. Um, I belong, I have belonged for a very long time to the local CEO council here in Tampa Bay. Uh, and they have fantastic speakers who challenge me uh, every time I go to hear them. Um, and uh, so, you know, those are, those are the things that I do. Um, uh, to to continue to grow, and uh, I'm sure there's times when I let my ego get in the way. And I will say, some of my weakest attributes that you know I'm not sure I'm ever going to change is that uh, I can be too honest and say too much. I mean, maybe I've already been too honest in this podcast, <laughs> but uh, um, and but also I, I another weakness I feel like I have is I don't have very thick skin, so I get very offended you know it would be better if I took things less personally but that's kind of who I am and it's uh 
I take responsibility for things. Uh, so again, you know, maybe too much, but I recognize that about myself. And I know that, for example, I could never go into politics. I, 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 I wouldn't survive it. You know, all the mudslinging and stuff that's gotten so much worse ever since social media has, you know, become, a, a, you know, come about. Um, I, I just I don't, know, I don't think I would do well at that. You know, what's funny about that, Barbara. So it's interesting to me. It, I just I love that you shared that candidly, uh, because that to me is, I think, such a strength, the willingness to be able to say, Hey, I, I recognize that maybe sometimes I'm a little too honest or I'm, you know, not as thick skinned as I would probably like to be. To me, I almost see that as a strength because it sounds like you are doing that kind of introspective look at yourself and saying, okay, here's where I am. So do you ever find yourself when you, let's say, for example, you get offended, um, do you find yourself stepping back and saying, okay, maybe this person didn't really mean this. Maybe this is just me not having thick skin. Do you, do you kind of step back and do that? sometimes well i do now i mean if you know there have been times when my reaction has you know not really served to move the discussion along if you will in a positive way because i've been just kicked off you know so um but uh uh yeah i think i've evolved i've been able to say um i'm not going to take that personally you know or um, recognize that there are other uh, elements at play somewhere uh, in that whole situation. So uh, I, I'm better at it, but I'm, I, it's probably going to be part of my personality forever, you know, that I, those two things, you know, are, are going to be difficult for me to completely change. I mean, you know, it can be something I can aspire to in my old age. How's that? I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> and that kind of leads to one of the next questions I, I want to ask you. And I know that I provided you some kind of questions up, up front. So I'm going to want to skip down a little bit because I think it fits nicely here. What what do you do for, you mentioned some of the things you're going to do during retirement. So maybe that you've already answered this, but what are some of the things that you do for yourself as a leader to, to be introspective, to take care of yourself, to kind of step back away from habitat and maybe away from your own decisions that you make and say, okay, let me look at this from a different lens, or at least let me take my mind off of this. What, what do you do, I guess, for Barbara to make life easier in the habitat world? Yeah, I, you know, it, it'd be great if there was like a magic bullet. I think that you have to, things that you actually do are going to have you change the mindset and the mindset change that you have to make is that um you have to take you have to figure out how to take time for yourself and not feel bad about it that's the key don't feel bad about it you know i can't tell you how many times when i sold computers uh you know because i had responsibilities uh and work for habitat that i canceled vacations not canceling vacation. I haven't canceled vacation for a very long time. And I'm, guess what? I don't feel bad about it at all. I'm glad I took those vacations. Um, so I don't work myself cr crazy anymore and I don't feel bad about it. That's, for me, that's the key. So you can say, well, do you, you know, you meditate, get some exercise, you know, go to church, 
pray, uh, you know, eat well, get enough sleep at night, you know, all those things, but you're not going to do them until you've changed your mindset to say, you know, I deserve this and I'm going to take care of myself and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Wow. That's, that's powerful. I, I love that. So you can't really even the, the um, I don't want to use the term technology, but the, the methodology for taking care of oneself is you have to at least start with the idea that you deserve to be taken care of. And, and, and I would say, I'm, I think you would probably agree with me entirely on this, that with the stress of being a leader in Habitat, which I think is, I don't want to say it's wholly unique, but it's pretty darn unique uh, relative to other fields and certainly relative to other nonprofits, that you do have to recognize that need to take care of yourself, right? You have to be able to step back and say like, if I'm going to move the mission forward, I've also got to move myself forward humanly. Yeah, just have to be, you have to take care of yourself for sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I want to I, I tell you one other story. Can I, do we have time for that? Um, uh, most definitely, most definitely. Please tell another story. I hope it's as good as the horse story. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, so I found myself in a situation when I was running Habitat Pinellas where I had too many people reporting to me and uh, I was kind of a bottleneck. So um, one, one of my favorite leadership books is a book called What God You Hear Won't Get You There. Uh, and it's by Marshall Goldsmith. And he talked about, you know, sort of removing yourself from certain, you know, day-to-day -day stuff where, where you used to, you know, really get involved with everything and, uh, you know, push your agenda through and you, you just have to give that up after a while and make sure you've hired good people who you can empower to make their own decisions. You know, it's not, you, you don't have to decide what color the napkins are going to be at your special event. You know what I mean? You know, leave that stuff to other people. So, um, so two things that, happened that I thought were really helpful to that, especially running a large affiliate. And, and by this time, we were building more than 20 houses a year, which, you know, now my old affiliate is building almost 60 houses a year. So, you know, it sounds puny. 20 sounds puny compared to that. But anyway, um, I, it, it turned out that we were growing larger and there was communication gaps in um from their leadership team meetings to actually the you know people uh doing some of the work like volunteer coordination actually getting what they getting the information that they needed to have to fulfill all of those um activities that needed to be done so um someone came up with and i thought it was a great idea someone came up on the leadership team said, we need to have a cross-functional team meeting where there's, you know, all these other people are talking about what we're doing and the activities that need to happen to make it, make it work. Like there's a program that you had to have 200 volunteer hours for the sponsor, for the donor of the house in order to get this money over here. So, um, you know, then they would, we're able to organize things better by meeting together and um, matching up donors with particular houses and families with that donor and blah, blah, blah. But when they came to me and they said, we want to have these cross-functional meetings. So, you know, 
what what's your schedule like so we can you know have you at these meetings and I said oh I don't need to be at those meetings I think they were fat no I said no you you guys you guys can make your own decisions about all that stuff and if you have a problem or you can't you have an argument or a disagreement about something and you want me to weigh in just let me know but I don't need to be at those meetings and um then I didn't have to decide, you know, what, because if I said, you can make the napkins any color you want, but, you know, I do like blue. Well, guess what? Those napkins are going to be blue. So having me in the room is antithetical to getting them to take responsibility for their little area. So there's, that's one thing that I, you know, I didn't have all this ego about, well, I have to be there and I have to be the one who says how things go. No, I don't. I don't. Um, and then the other thing that happened was with having all these um, people reporting to me, I had my vice president of construction was leaving. And I said, this is a good opportunity for me to reorganize. So I went to the board with a new organization and they approved it. And so I was going to have a COO and a vice president of construction. And COO would have the vice president of construction working for them, plus other departments like volunteer coordination and grant compliance and stuff like that. So um, I, I looked at the two likely people who would want both of those jobs. And I thought, oh man, I don't want them to like be competing with each other for the job. And then one gets a job they wanted, they, the job they wanted. And then they have to work, one has to work for the other and they're gonna feel like the loser. And uh, so I called those two people in and I said, look, here's the new organization. Um, I want the two of you to go away and say, who's gonna be the COO? who's going to be the vice president of construction. Now, for me, I knew either one of them could rise to the challenge of either job. And I didn't care who got the job. And it didn't have to be me making the decision. I let them make the decision. And I said, you guys make a decision and come back to me. And then tell me within that department, who's going to actually report to who. Just, you know give you two weeks to figure it out and come back and see me and that worked so great you know there were no egos you know they decided it it actually played out the way I thought it would but um there were no egos there was it was great uh, I can't tell you how what it that was a that was just really um powerful lesson for me that I didn't have to make all the decisions so how's that? Barbara, that's an awesome story. I think that story is fantastic. And it's such a practical example. You, you know, I think you know this because we've talked about it a little bit, but, you know, we we really talk a lot about servant leadership. Uh, that's something we've been promoting big time to Georgia affiliates and are going to continue to do so. And so much of what I've seen and experienced with servant leadership is that, you know, a true leader is somebody who empowers 
the, the other folks in the organization. And, and both of the examples you gave there between the team meeting and right there with letting those individuals make that decision, to me, that's, that is servant leadership in a nutshell. It's you've empowered them. You've given them the tools necessary. You've sat down and said, here's what the expectations are. You, you know, go forth and multiply. And it seems to me that, you know, anytime you find yourself in a situation where you're the one making all the decisions and you're the one doing all the work and you're the one, you know, uh, whatever the case may be, there's a problem there, right? I mean, because it means that you're not empowering other people. You're really just doing it all yourself. And because of that, you, you don't have anybody else rising up. So I absolutely love the stories you gave because I think those really coalesce well with this notion of servant leadership and what it really means to be a leader in the first place. Um, again, I, I think that I just sort of, I'm not always able to, but I was able to put my ego aside and say, I don't need to be in all those meetings. I don't need to tell, I don't need to be the arbiter of who's going to get what job, you know, they can go off. They're big people, you know, they're good people. I hired good people. Let them go off and make their own decisions. Well, Barbara, in the interest of time, I want to be respectful of your schedule. I, I want to do one last question here, and you've kind of answered it somewhat. So January 2022 comes around. Barbara Beck is no longer at Habitat Florida. She's sailed off into the sunset. What are some some maybe life goals, or I don't know if you are going to still try to work somewhere. What What are some of the things that you want to do that maybe 10 years from now you want to you know, see Barbara accomplish. You mean in retirement? What are, yes, in yeah. retirement or just in life in general, where, where you want to go? You know, honestly, I think, you know, as, as I, you rightly say, we've talked a little bit about it. I've had a very stressful life. I've had health challenges. Um, so I want to have, you know, I just want to feel peaceful for the rest of my life. And um, not have so much stress. And if I can have a relatively, you know, stressless rest of my life, uh, that's my goal. Really is. That's awesome. I think that's a very worthwhile goal. <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest with you. So, well, I wish you much luck in achieving that goal, Barbara. And I do want to tell you again how much I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today. I've gotten a lot from your leadership over the years and from this conversation. So thank you so much for the time and, you know, for everything that you do for the mission, you've obviously made a big impact and I hope you know that I appreciate it. And I'm sure many others do as well. Thanks Ryan. It was fun to sort of organize my thoughts for in preparation for this. And I feel really good now about retiring. It made me do like my own little documentary about myself. <laughs> Well, fantastic. I'm glad that we were able to help a little bit on that. So uh, just to return the favor for everything that you've done for me. So again, thanks for everything. And uh, I hope you, I wish you well going forward. And if you do change your name, you know, maybe let some of us know so we can at least, you know, send you well wishes <laughs> once in a while. I'm never changing my name again. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so much trouble. I'm telling you. I was just kind of messing with you there. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, Barbara, thanks so much and have a great rest of the week. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan.